Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Ken Bear with Faith Dialogue. We are in a sermon series called Unstoppable. It's based on the New Testament book of the Acts of the Apostles. You know, last week, uh, we've been following the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul finally arrived in Jerusalem. As you recall, uh, Paul had been collecting gifts from the churches in both um, uh, Galatia, the area of, uh, of Asia, as well as in uh, Macedonia, the area of uh, present-day Greece. Um, and along with the finances, he's been bringing along with him a number of the prominent believers, a large gathering of men that are traveling with Paul, and they finally all get to, to Jerusalem. And Dr. Luke has been recording uh, Paul's missionary journeys. It's all for our benefit. Now, we mentioned last week that there was a man named Mason of Caesarea who traveled with them this last leg because he had a home in Jerusalem. And Dr. Luke also mentions that this Mason of Caesarea was a Jew and was one of the early believers, probably going back to Pentecost and possibly actually to the time that Jesus was walking among the Jews in, in Jerusalem. Now, along with Paul and Dr. Luke, we now know that there's a number of different companions, as I said, and Scripture actually mentions a lot of them by name. For example, over the last few chapters, we knew, we knew of Aristarchus and Segundus, uh, two men from Thessalonia, and Gaius from Derbe, and Timotheus uh, from Asia, and Tychius and Tromipheus. So these were, these were men that were traveling with, with Paul. And last week, as we said, Paul finally arrived in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he met with James, the brother of our Lord, along with the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is 25, possibly 30 years after Pentecost. So by this time, the church in Jerusalem has literally tens of thousands of people. And there could easily be a couple hundred elders that Paul is meeting with. But then we came to a, a turning point. We said that this turning point in literature is called a peripatia. It's a Greek word that means a reversal. And we see that, that Paul's, um, his whole ministry was almost reversed. Paul went from a very high point of his ministry of telling, the, uh, telling James and the elders about his third missionary journey and, and, uh, and them glorifying God for it. Verse 18 uh, from last week says this. It says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And that verse ends with these words, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. But then we have this peripatia, this, this dramatic change in tone and in theme and direction. Uh, Paul's peripatia, it says the elders responded. Uh, they had just glorified the Lord. But then they say this, they said, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews, now that's tens of thousands, there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. So we ended our discussion last week, um, not only with this sudden change, but then a compromise that the elders suggested to Paul. And their suggestion was that Paul go with four men who were known to be noble and well-known, uh, that they were faithful, that Paul would associate with them, go through a purification process, the end of a Nazarite vow, and then everyone would see that Paul was a okay guy. Well, again, you know, we say, and oh, well, only someone ingests. This was a, a compromise that was doomed to fail. Um, it is not going to go well for Paul. And we're going to pick up there in verse 26. It says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, in this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously Tomepheus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So we see this very, very quickly, that this compromise, this plan set, set forward by the elders, falls apart. In fact, it's not even the seventh day of purification. It was while that seventh day was still going on. Paul had not even completed the purification when these Jews from Asia cry out. You know, again, this, this plan never really had a chance. Remember the request was that Paul go with these men and be purified with them and pay their expenses. You know, it's obvious that even some of the elders of the church were concerned that Paul had something against the Jewish customs that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem still valued. So by sponsoring or paying the sacrificial expenses of these four Christian Jews who are fulfilling a vow of purification and consecration, Paul would show the community of Christians in Jerusalem that he is not opposed uh, to the continued customs of the Jews. Now, here's the thing. Nowhere in scriptures do we find Paul teaching Christian Jews to forsake Moses or not to circumcise their children or that they should ignore Jewish customs. Actually, Paul describes the way to manage these cultural differences between the Gentiles and the Jews including that he, Paul, who understands the grace of God probably better than any of us, would go to a temple and actually take a Nazarite vow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explains this. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I may win the Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. So again, Paul is managing these, these two cultures, the Jewish and the Gentile culture. Now this is something actually that all of us, all of us really need to manage. There are many others that believe in Jesus Christ and have somewhat different views than likely some of us regarding how to conduct themselves as well as how to uh, conduct a worship service. 
Some churches, for example, allow women and men to be pastors and elders and deacons. Some prohibit women from some of these offices. Some churches baptize infants. Some churches don't baptize a person until that person makes a decision to follow Jesus. Some churches have communion at every service. And some churches have a communion service very infrequently, maybe monthly or even less frequently. Each should be fully convinced, not only in their own mind, but because of what the scriptures teach. You know, it's the Word of God that doesn't change. We change. Our interpretation of the Word of God changes. Our understanding of how God is moving among his people, that understanding changes, but God doesn't change. Jesus actually prayed that we would be one, just as Paul prayed. Jesus prayed that we would be one. As the Apostle Paul prayed, sometimes we need not to focus on what makes us different, but we need to focus on what makes us one. Jesus prayed this in John 17. He said, Father, I pray that they would be one, just as you um, and I are one, as I'm in you and you in me, I just pray that they would be one in us. And Jesus prays this twice. And then he says, Father, I pray that they would be one, so that those outside of the church, all of those would understand that you sent me, that you sent me. And what a wonderful statement, what a wonderful understanding of what it means to be one in Christ, to be understand that we are the body of Christ, but at the same time, we have to be, we have to be one. So let's go on. Scripture says in verse 27 that when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. So that's the, that's the, the people, the Jews, the law, which is the Torah, the law of Moses, and this place, meaning the temple. Now notice the words it says, Jews from Asia. Now if you recall back in, in Acts 15, a few months ago in our teaching, there appeared to be some Jewish Christians that did not like the implication of Gentile salvation that Paul was preaching. Individuals from this group, Jews from Asia, went into the churches established by Paul and taught that circumcision was required. They stirred up the crowd. They taught that all of the Christians, the Gentiles, had to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, who were these opponents of Paul? Well, Paul identified in some of his letters, not in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, but in some of the letters of Paul, he identifies them as Judaizers. Again, it's not a term that Dr. Luke uses, but Paul uses it later. Scholars believe that the greatest persecution that Paul faced was from these Jews. Now, these Jews, like Jews of Asia, were actually living outside of Jerusalem and Israel. The Jews of Asia are an example and what we can summarize by some anthropologists refer to as a phenomenon called hyperculturalism. Now, this term hyperculturalism is a combination of, of two words. Hyper, which means excessive or extreme, and culture. And culture, we're taught, is the gross sum of all of the characteristics, the knowledge of a particular group, particularly applying to religion, language, food, social habits, music, and the arts. Now what's interesting is that these cultural cues that people express, their sayings, their accents, the idiosyncrasies of the culture, 
Typically, when you're outside of your home base, are hyped. They're hyperculture. You become excessively who you are when you're away from where you came from. So, for example, the Jews from Asia were living outside of Jerusalem and Israel. They would come back to Israel for some of the feasts, just as the Apostle Paul did. But other than that, they're living in Gentile lands, but they're living as Jews living in Gentile lands. They bonded while they're outside of Israel to the, Israel, the Jewish customs to such a degree that they're much less likely than the Jews that are actually living in Jerusalem to accept any deviation from their culture as they understand it. They were much more threatened by Paul and Christianity in Asia than the Jews were threatened by Paul and Christianity in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem actually embraced Christianity, embraced Jesus as their Messiah. They were not threatened by some of the changes to their culture. They hung on to some of the Jewish traditions but they relaxed a number of them because they accepted Jesus. They were not threatened by a new teaching within their own culture. Now actually, we see examples of hyperculturalism uh, today. Uh, have you ever heard the term ugly American? Well, the ugly American refers to how Americans interact with each other, especially when they're outside of the United States. We even see this down here in Florida. We see, we see people coming from New York and New Jersey, and they, start, they have more of a New York and a New Jersey accent here than they ever did back up in New, New York or New Jersey. They cling to their culture and are much less accepting of any change because, again, they are outside of their home base. So let's go back to the scripture today. Um, it says, furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, what this scripture is referring to is this custom, this law that the Jews had, that the temple was not only sacred, but it was off limits to anybody other than the Jews. In fact, they had, you had the temple of, the, temple of the, the, the court of the Gentiles that the Gentiles could go into, but then you had the, the court of the women and then the, court, the, the, the temple itself where only men were allowed. It says, for they had previously seen Tromiphius, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they assumed or supposed that Paul had brought Tromiphius, the Ephesian, into the temple, which he did not. Now, some history of the temple in Jerusalem. Again, the Jews' view of the world. Remember, to the Jews, there's only two kinds of people. There are Jews and Gentiles, just as the Greeks understood the world to consist of Greeks and barbarians. The Jews were God's people. They had the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the temple. Uh, they had Moses as their teacher. They had David as their king. And they had Jerusalem as the, the holy place. The Gentiles had nothing. And as a result, they were despised. The only people that the Jews despised more than Gentiles were the Samaritans. And the reason was is the Samaritans were half Gentile and half Jew, but also the Samaritans had the gall to believe that their religion based on the books of Moses was actually superior to the, the religion of the Jews. So regarding the temple in Jerusalem, again, the law was absolute. It was absolutely prohibited for Gentiles 
to go beyond what was called the court of the Gentiles, to the temple grounds. Back then, as there is today, um, there are signs that are posted, um, back then in Greek and in Latin, which read something like this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility, including ensuing death. So notice in, in verse 29, it said they had previously seen Paul with Tromiphius, and they thought for sure that Paul had brought Tromiphius into the temple with him. Let's continue. Verse 30. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Now that's referring to Paul. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he, com he commanded to be him, which is Paul, to be taken to the barracks. And the scripture says, now as they were seeking to kill him, you know, this has happened before to Paul, but now this is serious. He's in Jerusalem. This is an angry crowd that's been stirred up by these Asian Jews. Paul had been seized by an enraged mob, and the mob didn't want to just take him out of the temple. They wanted to take him out to the gates of the city and stone him. They wanted to kill him right there on the outer courtyard if necessary. Paul had been near death before because of the attacks of murderous, uh, murderous uh, mobs. Well, we read that in um, Acts 14 and also uh, Acts 15. And he must have thought, you know, here we go again. The news, it says, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, historians tell us that in Jerusalem, the garrison of the Roman soldiers was near the Temple Mount. It was in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And there was their entire garrison, about 500 soldiers that were assigned to this, this commander and were to protect and keep order in Jerusalem. It says, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Again, this is a peacekeeping force. The soldiers come marching in, so they stop beating Paul. The Romans didn't really care about the law of the Jews. They didn't care about these internal disputes. They didn't really care about the Christians, nor did they sympathize with either the Christians, the Jews, or what Paul was saying. The Romans were only interested in one thing, and that is keeping the peace. So they arrested Paul, both for his own protection and also to remove the source of the irritation on the crowd. Now, did you notice that in the scriptures it says that Paul was bound in, in two chains? That means that Paul likely had a soldier attached to his right hand and a soldier attached to his life hand, uh, left hand in, ch in chains. Now, Paul's got to be remembering the prophecy of Agabus that we read about in Acts 21, that the, whole, the owner of this belt, as he took Paul's belt and wrapped it around himself, would be bound in Jerusalem. Let's continue. Verse 35. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people following after, crying out, away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? 
He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, it's interesting. It says the multitude of the people followed after him, crying out, away with him, away with him. Now, when the mob is crying out for his death, Paul may have thought back to the martyrdom of, of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church. Now, Saul, who is, was Paul's name at the time, Saul was there. And the scriptures say that he was consenting to the stoning of Stephen. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7. Or perhaps it reminded Paul of what he read or was told of the trial of Jesus. You know, Jesus had this mock trial in front of, of uh, Pontius Pilate, and the crowd shouted, away with him, um, which then um, uh, uh, took Jesus from the steps of Pilate um, to his death. Notice at first the Roman commander thought that Paul was a, a terrorist and was surprised that Paul was an educated man and actually could speak Greek. Now, this is a, there's a reference here um, uh, by Dr. Luke to this Egyptian that's referenced by the Roman soldier. Um, actually, this, as this account of the Egyptian-led insurrection in Jerusalem around 50 AD was recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. Here's what Josephus, I, I looked this up, I thought you'd find this interesting. This is what Josephus had to say. There was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews more mischief than the former, for he was a cheat and pretended to be a prophet also, and got together 30,000 men that were so deluded by him, which he then led around in the wilderness to a mountain which was called the Mount of Olives. He was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place, and if he could, but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people, he intended to rule them by the assistance of those guards of his that were to break into the city with him. So that's what Josephus has to say. Now think about it. 30,000 Jews being led by this Jewish man from, uh, from, uh, from Egypt called the Egyptian. 30,000 men, we know that there were 500 Roman soldiers at the garrison. So this is, <laughs> this is on the, the commander of the garrison's mind. I mean, perhaps this is the same Egyptian that led 30,000 men um, on Mount Olives against the city back a few years before. So let's go back to the scripture. Uh, Paul cries out. He says, if I am, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. So Paul identifies himself first as a, as a Roman citizen. Now that changes things in the mind of the Roman commander. Now this of no mean city, that's what it's, how it's translated in the New King James. In the NIV it says, I'm a citizen of no ordinary city. No ordinary city. He says, Paul, please, Paul says, please let me speak to the people. Now this is an interesting request, think about it. Paul wants to talk to the very people that want to kill him. He doesn't seek protection from the Romans, he's seeking an audience. At this moment when his life was in danger by the angry mob, Paul wants one more opportunity to preach the word of God. He wants to tell them the gospel, he wants to tell the mob about Jesus. So let's finish up as we're nearly at the end of Acts chapter 21. Uh, we'll actually reserve one week, uh, one verse at the end of uh, Acts 21 for next week. Um, but let's review some of the similarities that we've seen now in Acts 20 and 21 between Paul, the apostle, 
and Jesus, the Son of God. The first one, like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of disciples. Like Jesus, Paul had opposition from hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Like Jesus, Paul made or received three successive predictions that he would suffer and possibly die at the hands of the Gentiles. Like Jesus, Paul had followers who tried to discourage him from going to Jerusalem and the fate that awaited him there. Like Jesus, Paul said that he was ready to lay his, down his life. Like Jesus, Paul was determined to complete his ministry and not be uh, deflected from it. Like Jesus, Paul expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Like Jesus, Paul came to Jerusalem to give something to the people. Like Jesus, Paul was unjustly arrested on the basis of a false testimony. Like Jesus, Paul alone is arrested, but none of his other followers are arrested as well. Like Jesus, Paul heard the mob crying away with him. And like Jesus, the Roman officer handling Paul's case didn't really not know his true identity. And like Jesus, Paul was associated with terrorists from the Roman officials. You know, in a very um, similar manner, all of us, all of us need to embrace the uh, sufferings and the fellowship that Jesus went through. Uh, Paul says that um, Paul embraced the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's uh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. Now we may find that these similarities between Paul and Jesus are, are interesting or actually striking. Uh, remember we too also should have some of these same similarities between our life and ministry and that of both Jesus as well as Paul. We are to reflect the glory of the Son of God. God Jesus told us that we are to be salt and light. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul would tell us in Romans 8, 29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, you also may be tempted in the wilderness by the devil. There may be times in your life when you need to rise early and seek your Father in prayer. Um, you may also need to seek the Father and through prayer for direction in your life. People may come to you with a need that you know that only God can meet. You may also experience times when you need to be able to calm, uh, calm what appears to be a storm, not only in your life, but in the life of others. There are times when you, be, will be laid, you will be called to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. You know, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's what the Bible says. So to God be the glory. As Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to again uh, go through. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org. 